Welcome once again to the Bible and our culture, where we look at the culture through the lens of the Bible, not the other way around. I'm Pastor J. MacPherson. Glad to have you with us. Thanks to our sponsor, Liberty Remnant Church, and other folks who support this ministry. We've been going through the story of Gideon and learned a lot in the last few weeks. Today we're going to look at Judges chapter 7 and mostly into chapter 8 to see what happened after this miraculous victory. So God's up until this point have worked so many miracles through Gideon. First miracles revealing his care and love to Gideon and then this huge miracle where 300 guides armed with some trumpets take on multiple huge armies and God turns them against each other and they get this huge victory. But now they're trying to subdue the victory totally, as that is some of running away, and Gideon wants to crush that army so they don't come back and reorganize and begin to oppress them again. He, they don't want him to regroup so that they continue in a war that's going to last years and years when they could end the war today. So in chapter 7 of Judges, verse 23, it says, And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They sound like Star Wars guys, if you ask me. And all the Star Wars stories written over the years, there's got to be a character in the Star Wars saga named Oreb, and there's got to be a character named Zeb. That just, just seems like Star Wars guys. But continuing in verse 25, it says, They killed Oreb at the Rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. I wonder if they named those places after those guys after they killed them there. What I actually think probably happened is Oreb, who was a prince of Midian, came and named this rock after himself, and Zeb who was an arrogant prince of the Midianites, came and named this wine press after himself. So when the tables were turned against the Midianites, the children of Israel came and killed them at the very place they named after him. That's what I think happened. But the Bible doesn't give us too much clarity on that. But it does, I think, cause me to lean uh, to the latter. It says, They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. This was the children of Ephraim that did this. In verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizer? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, or of Zeb, And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. He's basically saying, hey, you guys are the real heroes. We just helped you out. You guys killed the princes. We got it started all right. But hey, your grapes, one trip through harvesting your grapes is better than all our storage of grapes at Manasseh, where he's from. He was really wise in how he handled that. Now, considering God had just performed an amazing miracle where only God could get the credit, the aftermath of the victory would require lots of wisdom from Gideon to enforce and maintain the victory. God miraculously worked the victory, but now Gideon had to use wisdom. He had to respond wisely in order to enforce and maintain that victory. 
Wisdom would help secure a lifestyle victory instead of merely a one-day victory before falling back into servitude. If you walk with God long enough, he does miraculous things. He does great things, and you can stand in that one cool thing, but if you really want to enjoy his kingdom, you're going to have to grow in wisdom and understanding. That's what it says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding. A lot of times we like the inspiration, the cool, warm fuzzies, the, the, the nice little sensational things that God does. And I like those all too, very much so. But the Bible says that wisdom is the principal thing and all you're getting, get understanding. So Gideon's wisdom was able to let the victory last. His 300 warrior victory put the enemy on the run, but now it was time for him to lead the rest of God's people to join the fight before the Midianites could reorganize. Now, three tribes were with him uh, from the beginning, pursuing the enemy. And naturally, these would have been those of the 32,000 who didn't make the cut to 300. Remember, God whittled down Gideon's army from 32,000 to 300. But now, their opportunity of these people who didn't make the cut, they get to show up and fight now, and Gideon's getting them involved. Apparently, when Gideon sent messages throughout all the mountains of Ephraim to come down and fight the Midianites, this was the first time the tribe of Ephraim ever heard of a battle against the Midianites. So they seemed to feel insulted. They weren't invited from the very beginning. Hey, why didn't I get to come to the party originally? So either they were feeling left out or feeling like they weren't going to be respected in the future because they weren't at the very beginning. This baited them towards offense, and apparently they took the bait. So it says in verse 1 of chapter 8, Judges, Now the men of Ephraim said to Gideon, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight the Midianites? And reprimanded him sharply, the Bible says. So I want to ask you, how would have you reacted if you were in Gideon's situation? Man, you just saw God work this miraculous victory, built upon a whole bunch of other miracles to lead up to that. And now you're trying to finish the battle. You're trying to be the commander-in-chief, the secretary of defense, the general in the battlefield, and the spokesperson for the Pentagon. You're, you're trying to do all this stuff to maintain the victory and organize the Ephraimites and everybody else that didn't make the cut. He's got a lot of stress on him right now. So if I was in the middle of this huge victory, I don't know if I would have the patience to tenderly care for Ephraim's big inflated ego. If you had the stress of trying to organize all these tribes to defeat your oppressors who have oppressed you for many years and thought, I don't want them to get away, how would have you reacted to Ephraim's hurt feelings? I think I might have been a little like, hey, God used us to bring the victory. Don't talk to me that way. Grow up, Ephraim. But it's amazing how Gideon responded. Basically said, hey, I'm, I don't even try and compete with you guys. You guys are awesome. Man, one trip through your vineyards is way better than all that we stored up for our grapes. God delivered the princes of Midian into your hand, so what are we able to do in comparison to you? I mean, he, he really acted wisely. He should be like a White House press secretary or something. Basically, Gideon said, hey, we started the battle, but you Ephraimites, you came in and won it all. You guys came off the bench to win in the fourth quarter in overtime. You're the heroes of the game. You're the MVPs. Ephraim is the hero. We, people from the tribe of Manasseh, we're simply happy to make a humble contribution in support of you guys. 
I think it's important to observe Gideon did not react defensively. He responded wisely. Boy, if we could have the grace to do that. I believe we will have the grace to do that whenever we ask for it. But sometimes in, in the course of life, we get our feelings hurt, we get angry, we get frustrated, and we react in the flesh instead of respond to the Holy Spirit. Reacting and responding is half the battle in life when it comes to wisdom, I think. Reacting means you're, you're reacting in an animal-like way. You're just sort of fight or flight. It's just a very impulsive type of reaction. But responding is saying, I'm going to look at the big picture. I'm going to try and take my feelings and my filters out of it and respond in a way that's going to be the best of whatever I can do with the hand that's dealt to me. If a doctor tells you that your, your child is uh, responding to the treatment, you're like, great. But if the doctor says your child is reacting to the treatment, you're like, oh, no. So let's learn to respond like Gideon did and not react like most of us probably would have. There was a lot of facts Gideon could have used to defend himself, and he could have returned fire with more legitimate attacks, scolding and even mocking Ephraim's egocentric reprimand. Boy, if I thought of ways to rip the Ephraimites up, I would have done so. If Gideon reacted in his flesh, he could have come up with a lot of material to verbally assault Ephraim. Most of us have grown up in a sitcom era where we've watched situational comedies over and over and over again, and they're not about teaching us how to resolve conflict in a constructive and wise way. They're not teaching relationships on how to be loving to one another. They're trying to create conflict, and they're trying to have humor with it. So from a sitcom perspective, Ephraim might have said something to the Ephraimites like this. Oh, excuse me. I was so distracted trying to obey God in fighting these tyrants. Pardon me if I haven't found time to send you an engraved invitation. I mean, that's something that if that came in my mind, I might have been tempted to say it. What if Gideon would have said, I'm frantically working right now trying to subdue the enemy. I don't have time to deal with your poor little hurt feelings. He could have said something like, Hey, Ephraim, God took my army of 32,000 and whittled it down to 300. If you think it would have made one bit of difference if you guys came early, take a trip to reality. Or maybe he could have also said as, as we move on, Well, apparently the Lord chose us over you, so take your wounded self-inflated ego. Take it up with God, hot shots. I mean, these are all sitcom responses. And every one of them seemed to have some truth to it. I think every one of them are actually accurate. They're just said in a sarcastic, mean way. Well, let's try and avoid that. Let's look at the big picture. That's what Gideon did. He responded. He didn't react. Gideon realized that Ephraim was not refusing to fight. That's most important. And they weren't refusing to fight one bit. In fact, they wanted to be included in the victory even more. They were pursuing the enemy. Gideon loved that. God loved that. That's what Gideon wanted to applaud. They had so much in common, it would have been a shame to cut off the relationship over something small. Like, oh, who's going to get credit? That sort of thing. Gideon's excuses as to why he didn't invite Ephraim at the beginning were not major issues. If, however, Gideon returned fire on his fellow Israelites, he would have lost out on a much bigger situation. All right, he could have won a verbal squabble with Ephraim, but he would have lost the ultimate battle to the Midianites. I think we have a lot to learn there. I think we can understand. I don't want to get in little squabbles with fellow believers. I don't want to argue over things that aren't really going to produce much fruit. 
I want to go out there and win the culture. I want to go out there and enforce God's victory in our generation. If we look at it that way, I don't think we'll react in our flesh to disagreements of other people's sore egos and hurt feelings. Let's have some grace, in other words. Let's be merciful. Proverbs talks a lot about this, and I've got a few Proverbs I want to read to you, and they're in no particular order, just like the book of Proverbs seems to be. Most of the Proverbs of Solomon just appear to be shuffled. But in chapter 19, verse 11, it says, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. Now, there's some offenses we should not overlook. Somebody really hurts you, abuses you, you got to talk it over with them. Jesus talked about that. Other places it talks about going and, and, and sharing your hurt with your brother and hopefully gain them back and get restoration that way. But there are things that are so petty that you can just overlook them. It's not super important who gets credited. There's a lot of things that just aren't worth fighting for. And so Proverbs said, it's a man's wisdom that gives him patience, and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 16.32 says, Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. Wow, King Solomon said this? I would think his kingdom needed lots of skilled warriors. But what Solomon's saying is, hey, if you got a warrior who can take a city, but he can't control his own temper he's going to be much more of a liability than an asset. I'd much rather have a man who was patient. And that was what Gideon was here. He was patient with the Ephraimites' hurt feelings instead of attacking them and defending himself. He avoided the trap of attacking and defending that we fall into so much. Proverbs 20, verse 3. It is a man's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. Do you like to quarrel? Well, Bible says you're a fool. There's things worth quarreling about, but hopefully we can do it in a constructive way. When you get your dander up, when, when you get your ego involved, it usually doesn't work out too good. You're reacting instead of responding. Proverbs 12, 16. A fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. That's exactly what Gideon did. They were insulting him, but you know what? Hey, they're at least in the battle. They're at least killing the bad guys. Let me, let me just uh, cater to their ego here this once and we'll work it out eventually. He overlooked the insult, didn't make it personal. But the opposite of that is somebody that gets worked up, that reacts. Proverbs 17, 14. Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. So drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. Again, there are some things worth arguing about, worth disputing about. But what we spend a lot of time arguing over isn't that important. Maybe you've heard stories of churches that split over the color of carpet in the nursery or something silly like that. You know, I've been around the church long enough. It really wasn't about the carpet in the nursery. There was a lot of hidden issues beneath the surface that were never talked out that became bigger issues over time. So that was just the triggering issue that caused them to split. Proverbs fifteen eighteen: A hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, but a patient man calms a quarrel. And that's what Gideon did. He calmed the quarrel. He didn't stir it up. He had every right to if he was going to think only of himself. He could have come back with all these burns. He could have roasted them. He could have debated them and owned the debate because he, he was in the right. But he didn't care. He was just glad the, Ephraim, the Ephraimites were fighting together with him. 
So be aware of defensive communication and defensive attitudes. They have a way of damaging relationships. Some people have loving hearts, but destructive habits of communication. Maybe they grew up in a family where there wasn't healthy communication. And so they got this habit of, of attacking and defending, and they, they don't know how to resolve conflict. They don't know how to, how to calm quarrels, as the Bible said. An inferiority complex causes people to hear threats that aren't there. How many times have you said something, somebody took it personally, you didn't mean it that way. Maybe they have a wound in their heart where they, they feel a sense of inferiority. Maybe the devil's accusing them and condemning them. And so you, you, you mention something, they take it wrong, and they flip out. Well, first of all, don't be that person. And try to have understanding for people who do have a sense of inferiority. Ultimately, a believer must repent. That is, take responsibility for believing lies about feeling inferior. Don't feel inferior when Jesus says you're adequate. When Jesus says you're lovely, when Jesus says you're worth him dying for, then believe that and don't carry this sense of, of condemnation. Defensive people will attack others in self-preservation, right? When you see somebody acting defensively and they start attacking, it's usually because they feel threatened and they feel like they're so hurt, so wounded, feel so inferior that they've got to, they've got to fight back because if they don't, then people will see how truly defective and damaged they really are. Man, I pray for people like that. I think there's people listening right now that have had a, a tendency to, to feel like there's something wrong with them, something defective about them. God loves you. And I know you probably already know that if you're listening to this station, but receive that, accept that, live as if you're living life on the heels of the fact that God loves you, that God has accepted you, that God has forgiven you, and that he has made you his royal son or daughter in his kingdom. Let's take a quick break and we'll be back in one moment. Two years ago, Liberty Remnant Church was founded in Spokane by a group of committed Christ followers who, believing God, sought to build a distinct local church for his glory. LRC is a simple, relational, biblical church that holds firm to the basic tenets of biblical Christianity. We believe we are to represent Christ's love, power, and wisdom in every and any facet of society. Perhaps you've seen our pastor, Jay McPherson, or others from Liberty Remnant Church, either standing up at Spokane City Hall or at a local school board meeting in the area. We believe we are called to be salt and light as we bring people to new life in Christ. If you are looking for a local church or know someone who is, please consider what God is doing at Liberty Remnant Church. We meet every Sunday at the Oakwood Inn, 7919 North Division at 10 a.m. For more information or to contact our pastor, please check out our website at libertyremnantchurch.org. Once again, that's libertyremnantchurch.org. Glad to have you back on the Bible and our culture. Once again, I'm Pastor Jay MacPherson with Liberty Remnant Church. We've been talking about the wisdom of Gideon after the huge victory with just the 300 guys taking on all these armies. He now needs wisdom in order to subdue the enemy. And he runs into a little skirmish with God's people. The Ephraimites were ticked that they weren't invited from the very beginning. And so they make this big fuss about Gideon not inviting them. And instead of reacting like we're taught to do through the media, like situational uh, comedies would, would prompt us to react, he responds with grace and with wisdom and with kindness. And in doing so, helps subdue the Midianites completely. I think it's interesting how today 
so many of us would rather burn somebody than really advance God's kingdom. There's a lot of barriers to listening. Gideon not only listened to them, he understood a deeper issue going on here. I think if it wasn't for Gideon's wisdom and being sensitive to the grace of God, this could have been a, a big mess up. It could have been a squabble that could have been disastrous. See, Ephraim had a deeper issue. They didn't want to be the lesser tribe with Manasseh upstaging them. Gideon was from the tribe of Manasseh. Now, Ephraim and Manasseh are kind of together and always will be because they were the sons of Joseph. Talk about 12 tribes. Well, Joseph was Jacob's, in essence, favorite son and the son of Rachel. He was the one that saved the whole world uh, by listening to God. So Joseph was going to have a double portion of Jacob's inheritance. So his two sons, Manasseh, the oldest, and then Ephraim, his younger brother, were each going to become tribes themselves so Joseph could have two portions. Well, when Israel, or Jacob, gets ready to bless them in Genesis 48, he blesses Ephraim above Manasseh. And that ticked Joseph off because he's like, hey, my firstborn's Manasseh. Well, Israel says, no, son, Manasseh will be awesome, but Ephraim's going to be the greater tribe. So here's 100 years later, and Gideon from the tribe of Manasseh leads this huge victory, and Ephraim isn't a part of it until late in the game. So Ephraim's upset. Hey, we don't want to be the generation that lets Manasseh upstage us. We're supposed to be better than Manasseh. Gideon, rather than wasting time attacking and defending, he wisely seems to understand Ephraim's deeper issue and graciously addresses that. He talked about how you guys are heroes. You've got the blessing of God. You guys came in and captured the kings. We're indebted to you. You guys are awesome. That caused their anger to subside. Defensive communication and attitudes has a way of cutting off relationships and destroying relationships. Most of the hurt that people feel in the body of Christ isn't because people are vindictive and and all these Christian people just are full of hate and do damage because they want to. A lot of it is understanding. People get defensive and they react instead of respond. If we knew how to resolve conflict with wisdom, we'd be all right. But instead, we've got way too many people who have all sorts of bad habits in their communication. They listen defensively. They interrupt. They don't pay attention. They minimize other people's issues. They tend to be sarcastic and put people down and use accusing statements. They're, they're not really listening. They're preparing their answer. And it brings harm. So I'm encouraging all of us to let wisdom be the principal thing that we're seeking here and follow Gideon's example, not to engage in reaction, not to engage in defensive behavior, but to respond in wisdom. He understood the deeper issue. The deeper issue for Ephraim was they didn't want to feel inferior to what should be their little brother, Manasseh. When Ephraim saw Manasseh was already part of the victory, they didn't want to feel inferior. So they react and they try and put blame on Gideon somehow and some way. And even though it was really unfounded, Gideon responded graciously because he didn't look for a solution there at that event, at that conversation. He looked deeper into the heart of what was really going on to the origin of event. 
often when there's a conflict, what you're arguing about is not really what you're arguing about. The event that you argue about is merely resembling a deeper issue, maybe a hidden issue, and the origin from somewhere else. For example, newly married couple, the husband is asked to take out the garbage, but he forgets. He's involved in the game or whatever, and he doesn't do it right away, and then he flips his mind, he forgets. And that becomes a big argument in the new marriage. Well, the 10-second chore of taking out the garbage isn't really that big a deal, is it? But that's not really what the issue is about. That's what triggered it. That's what that's what brought it to the surface. But there's a deeper issue where the wife says, hey, we got our own roles, and my husband should be emptying the garbage. I, after all, after all, I made dinner. And he's not doing his job. But it's not just that. There's a deeper issue. Well, if you're not going to take out the garbage after I made you supper, I don't feel like I'm valued. I feel like I'm doing all the work. I'm being taken advantage. What am I, your doormat? That's the deeper issue. But most couples will argue forever about the garbage and never really resolve the deeper issue. We see that all over the place today. Way too many people, if a young person comes to them and says, you know, I've been called a boy, I've been raised a boy, I have the anatomy of a boy, but I don't feel like a boy. I feel like I'm a girl trapped in a boy's body. Well, I think everybody should see a problem there. Bible-believing Christians would say the problem is you've believed a lie about who you are. You believe God makes mistakes and he created you in the wrong body. But a left-wing socialist might say something like, oh, well, if you feel like you're a girl, the problem is with your anatomy. We're going to give you a surgery. We're going to have tax dollars pay for surgery so that you can get hormone blockers and you can get parts cut off so that you can be the gender that you feel that you are. They're looking to a solution on the event stage, in the externals. There's a deeper issue where the real problem lies. That is, they don't understand how God's made them. They don't understand what true masculinity is or what true femininity is. They're disturbed. Maybe they were sexually abused and they feel like, I'm all confused. I, I don't belong. I feel defective. I don't like being the sex that I am. I know my life is so miserable. I know that if I could just change genders, that... The grass will be greener on the other side of the fence. But as we've noticed over the years, when people have the surgeries, that doesn't get rid of their depression, doesn't get rid of their pain, doesn't get rid of their wounded heart. Only Jesus can do that. And changing the anatomy through expensive surgeries that are destructive by nature isn't going to fix anything. We've got to find a solution in the deeper issue. It's the same with a lot of church squabbles. There's a, a conflict within the church. It's usually not about the event. It's usually about the deeper issue of somebody feels like they're not being appreciated. They feel like somebody doesn't like them. They feel like they're defective. Something else is going on where usually the issues come. Most issues can be talked about. Some you might agree to disagree on some theological issues or even uh, issues about what color you're going to paint the bathrooms. I mean, those people have argued over those things in the past, but Generally, if you have wisdom, if you have a heart of love, either overlook things that aren't important or constructively resolve issues that are. Gideon would not have been such a great commander if he didn't use wisdom to advance his army after the victory that God brought him. See you next time in the Bible and our culture.